0: If you know at the Series B, Series C stage that you want to try and pursue an acquisition by a big company like Amazon, let's say, you would never wait until you're ready for that moment to build the relationship. Would you? No. You all practice. You can't go to them and say, We're ready to be bought. Want to get to know us? You have to build that relationship over time in a strategic way, in an intentional way, in a way that is not transactional at every step along the journey. And so that is the same muscle to deploy in building relationships with reporters.
1: Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth Podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. In today's episode of In-Depth, I'm thrilled to be joined by Niri Ordajan, the VP of communications, content, and community marketing at Figma. Prior to joining Figma, Nairi was the chief marketing officer at Canaan, an early-stage venture capital firm. And in 2013, she became Uber's first communications person and spent the next three years building out the function. Before getting into tech, Nairi came from the world of politics. She was a VP at Glover Park Group, a communications consulting firm started by former Clinton officials. And she also served as a policy director for the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee and as a staff assistant to then-Senator Joe Biden. In our conversation today, we dive deep into what a great communication strategy looks like at an early-stage company. Nairi does an amazing job of breaking down the basics for founders who aren't familiar with this function, as well as sharing some more advanced tactics that I think will be helpful, particularly in this media environment where it's so tough to get coverage. We start by diving into the key pillars of a startup's communications program. When it comes to earned media, Nairi is a firm believer that founders need to think beyond just announcing their Series A funding. She shares lots of thoughts on crafting foundational messaging for different audiences and shaping the company's narrative with examples from both Uber and Figma, as well as startups she's advised. Next, we get into the nuts and bolts of building relationships with reporters, Nairi shares her take on handling negative stories about your competitors and offers tons of tactical pointers on how to prepare for a media interview. I thought she made a really interesting distinction between charisma and dynamism, and I loved her tips for how founders can actually work on the latter. We ended on her advice for assembling the team that can help you shape and execute on your comms strategy. Nairi shares tons of great tips for working with agencies and freelancers, from how to choose who to bring on, to managing the relationship and evaluating success. She also shares advice on making your first full-time comms hire, including how to structure practical exercises in the interview process. I really hope you enjoy this episode, and now my conversation with Nairi. Well, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. Excited to be here.
1: I thought an interesting place to start might be to talk a little bit about how you've seen the journalism and tech journalism ecosystem change, call it, over the last 10 or so years, and maybe how that ladders into how you think about communications as a technology company today.
0: It's changed drastically. We all know that the media industry is contracting, And that means that on the very basic level, there's a supply and demand imbalance. There are fewer reporters to cover stories. And at the same time, we've seen an incredible proliferation in the number of venture-funded tech companies in particular. And what that does is put far more pressure on the quality of a communications program and the real sharpness of the story. It also means you got to build those relationships and we'll talk more about that, but that's another key here. The other massive change besides industry contraction is stories five, 10 years ago that used to be full length feature stories are now a two line tweet and forgotten within minutes. So again, that puts a lot more pressure on the quality of a narrative, of a story, and the teams that are trying to tell them through the earned media lens.
1: So let's sort of dive in here. When you talk about a communication program, what do you mean by that? And what does great look like?
0: A communications program really should encompass earned media, owned media, and sometimes paid as well. So let me talk about what that means. So earned media, it's called earned for a reason. You have to earn the coverage by the press. You can't just make it happen for yourself. Owned, as people know, your owned channels. How are you telling your own story in your own words on your own channels, your blog, your social channels, your newsletters as a company? And then paid is an opportunity to spread either your owned or your earned coverage to even more audiences. Put a little hand on the scale. So those are the external pieces. You know, the other piece of a comms program is, of course, internal communications, which has really risen in prominence and importance and value over the past five to 10 years. And then there are lots of other pieces that you could tuck in, depending on how you decide to organize it at your company. So that's really the core building blocks. And what does great look like? It's knowing what fits where. It's really being intentional about what your company long-term business strategy and goal is and where communications fits into it. That is, I think, where most mistakes happen. I think, especially with earned media, there are a lot of companies who just feel like it's a box they need to check. They look around, they see it happening, they see their peer sets getting coverage in certain publications by certain reporters, and then they don't necessarily take the time to look at their own long-term business goals and ask, does press matter for my business? Is there a unique value earned media for us is it something we should invest in and if we're going to invest in it how can we invest in it in a truly world-class way that's i think the most important first step for companies at the earlier stages is to really think about what the needs are who are the audiences and how to reach them and then filter tactics and strategies throughout those different levers can you give an example maybe
1: it's in your current role, past role. The idea of taking a long-term business strategy and translating that into, let's say, into earned media strategy, what does that actually look like?
0: I can give an example from Uber. One of the things we saw pretty early on at Uber is that there were a lot of drivers who were spending time on the platform just a few hours a day just in the in-between times, especially women. So women were taking their kids to school, and then they had a few hours to drive on Uber, make some money, and then go back to the rest of their responsibilities with their families at the end of the day, or if they had work that they needed to get to. And we really felt like this was an important business imperative to make sure we were facilitating that type of driver onto the platform, both to meet rider demand, but also to facilitate the economic opportunity for those drivers. And so that became a important piece of our communication strategy, both to shine a spotlight on those use cases, because it was different from the way people were initially thinking about drivers on Uber, which as you might remember, was initially professional livery drivers with black cars, and really talk about the impact of that program on the drivers and then the riders who were able to benefit
1: so maybe building on that, if you were to meet with a founder and they, they're, I don't know, call it series A stage, and maybe they're a 15-person team, they have a product in market with 1,000 users or 5,000 users. So there's early signs that there's something working. And they're like, we've never really thought about comms. We've never thought about press. What should they do? What kind of process do you think is most useful there?
0: Well, I think that the way I usually encounter that stage of company is after they've just secured their Series A and feel like they want to announce it. So actually, I see it less often that there's this step back intentionality behind the program and much more of, we need to announce our funding, let's put out a press release, which is not the best way to approach it. But so what I would tell that founder is, this is a great opportunity to do some really important foundation building. You, your pitch deck, you raised the Series A. There's a real story there, clearly. How does that translate into public-facing communications? Do you have a website yet? Do you have the encapsulation of what your core messaging is as a company? Some people call that brand positioning. You could Keep it simpler at that stage too without going through like the formal exercise. And who are the important audiences for your business strategy this year? Are you going to grow from 15 people to 100 this year? I can tell you reaching out to candidates and making sure that the types of skill sets you're looking to bring on, that people who have them hear your message and get excited about you is a really important audience. Recruiting is a really important muscle for any company at these stages, as we all know. And so that candidate audience is just essential. So that's definitely a piece. You're Series A. You're always going to want to stay on the radar of investors, especially in the current environment. Who knows when you're going to want to raise again? Maybe you'll get inbounded at some point. So keeping some pulse on that audience is important too. But what about who you're selling to? Are you a consumer-based company? Do you need to be reaching out? to much more broad-based consumer outlets from a press perspective? What is the right way? What are the right channels to reach the people who are going to use your product? Are you B2B? Trade publications can be super, super valuable there. They don't get a lot of attention you know, in the Silicon Valley chattering class, but they can be impactful from a, a business perspective. So just really doing that audit. Laying it out, making sure you have that core foundational messaging, and then from there thinking about, well, what needs to live in the, again, using the example of announcing funding in the blog post that we do announcing our fundraise? What elements do we need to plus up to make this into a pitch that's actually interesting for a reporter? and then working those details from there. But I, I think that the instinct is to just go straight into, well, I'm just going to reach out to some reporters, or we're going to put a press release across PR Newswire. By the way, that has no impact. Don't do it. And it's really important to take a moment and ground yourself in what you're trying to do for the coming 6, 9, 12 months. In terms of
1: that first step of figuring out messaging or narrative, etc. What are some of the things you figured out there or some stories that kind of illustrate what someone doing this well looks like?
0: I can talk about some of the ones that I worked on when I was working in venture. So we brought a robotics company out of stealth. And at the time, robotics companies were being funded left and right. And why was this company interesting? Well, the way it is interesting is in the context of Amazon and Amazon's work in robotics, in fulfillment centers and warehouses, and the fact that this robotics company was building a pretty massive customer base of Amazon competitors. And so really like leaning into that tension and the relevance that that would give an earlier stage startup was a key piece of getting media engagement around that particular moment, bringing it out of stealth and announcing the funding all along at the same time, thinking of it much more from a profile perspective. At a more general level, the companies that come out early to share with the world what they're up to, what they're working on. Think about it as a multi-channel moment where you're building this surround sound that includes your VCs and your other advocates and validators posting on Twitter about you, sharing If you were able, lucky enough to get some media coverage around your company, sharing out the blog post on LinkedIn, LinkedIn is such a powerful channel. The content just spreads and spreads and spreads. And especially if you're trying to hire a bunch of people. So really thinking about it in that way, but it never works unless there's like a really good story. And so the key here is who's responsible for drawing that story out. Some founders have really good instincts on comms and they inherently understand story. Others need more help. And you need to know if you're either, I think what I see more often is early stage teams who don't have expertise or practice in this area hiring agencies and then not knowing exactly how to direct them or manage them. And then it ends up being a bad fit, a poor outcome. And really, that was because there was sort of like a mismatch in language.
1: If you're trying to give advice to, A founding team and they want to do some of this work themselves and really kind of roll up their sleeves. Are there any frameworks or ways in which they can approach pulling out that narrative? And I think that it's, it's often tricky because to the point that you made a few minutes ago, there's a whole number of different stakeholders. One of the stakeholders is the reporter and weaving something together such that he or she will find this compelling enough to prioritize but the other is potential customers or talent or what have you. And you can often kind of be quite insulated in your own world and often mired in the details. And so is there anything that you figured out or advice you would give as a founding team or trying to figure out what's the big story here or how do I package this in a compelling way?
0: You'd be surprised. It's so common that at this stage, it's almost even hard sometimes for the team to answer, what are you building? One of the ways that I've worked on drawing that out over the years, especially during my time in venture working with this early stage cohort, is to say, tell me in the simplest terms, what are you up to? And then tell me why it matters. The what are you doing and why it matters is the starting point for a conversation. And then what you find is exactly to your point, because companies are heads down, they're so in the weeds of their work, they don't necessarily have the time to pick up their heads and look around and understand how they fit into the zeitgeist. What you get back is quite a bit of jargon and something that's almost indecipherable to somebody who doesn't already know their business. And so from there... You just work on stripping it down and stripping it down and stripping it down. Because whether you're selling to a CIO or a consumer or a candidate, everybody is a human and would like to be communicated to as a human, simply, directly, and in a way that's persuasive. So you just got to kind of workshop it, write it down, write it down again, strip it down, evolve it some more, and hopefully that gets you down to the essence. If you're only able to talk about what you're doing and can't hone in on why it matters right now within the context of what's going on in the world, it's never going to land as a earned media story. And that's okay. Maybe that just means informing other comms tactics, but that's an important step along the way. And you see a lot of jargon-laden descriptors of companies on their websites. And I work in SaaS now, which I never would have thought I would work in SaaS. I didn't know what SaaS was 15 years ago when I transitioned from politics into tech. And for a lot of SaaS and enterprise companies, you go to the websites and you're like, gosh, I have no idea what you do. I'm like pretty smart and I work in SaaS and I don't understand what your platform does. And that is the situation that you want to avoid, especially as you're getting started. When you
1: look at the last year and a half at Figma, how has the way in which you described what you do changed? And maybe can you explain what you do? Because I assume that you've spent a lot of time working on this as kind of an inspiration for folks that are working through how do you succinctly and concretely explain what you do?
0: We're a platform for teams to design together. We're a space that brings anyone who wants to be part of the design process in, gives them a seat at the table, and makes it possible for them to collaborate on design. And why does that matter? Well, design is how we experience the world. COVID really accelerated that. But anything you look at on a screen is powered by design. And so it's really the nucleus of how companies are going to run in the future. And we're enabling that.
1: And was there a process to get to that? Or has that been how you all describe the what you do and why it matters for a while?
0: It's iterative. You definitely want to do the mind meld with the founder and the CEO. You want to think about the feedback from the community and users. And you test and iterate. As you'd said, this Kool-Aid drinking is so common in companies that are passionate and about what they're up to. But sometimes you think something sells and it doesn't. So that's kind of the cross-functional effort and the journey we've been on as a marketing team at Figma over the past few years. And really, I have to give credit to the CEO and co-founder Dylan Field, who long before I or any of the marketers joined the team had been really intentional about what do we do and why does it matter? And you can see that in the early press coverage of the company going back
1: years. So going back to the case study that we were sort of talking through a minute ago, I think one of the things that I've noticed over many years is even companies that get organized and do a good job with their original launch or financing announcement or what have you struggle to do anything beyond that. And so it tends to be much more one and done versus an actual plan. And what are your thoughts on, again, you're a small team, you're getting going, how do you put a plan together that's not just we're announcing our $6 million round and we're going to get outlet X to cover it?
0: It's so common, what you're describing. Part of it is because a small team only has bandwidth to execute on a discrete moment and then move on. Sometimes that's true, especially at the stage you're describing around the Series A. But as they move slightly into the like Series B stage, it's really important to think thematically. What are the key themes for us from a go-to-market perspective, marketing perspective, comms perspective for the year? cross-functionally. And how are we going to hit them and at what moments in time? It's nice to actually do a timeline of the calendar with those themes and then populate it. It doesn't have to be something every week. And if you're an early-stage company and you're launching you know, your V2 of your beta, that's an owned content play. Nobody's going to write that. And the reason why you see more of the funding stories is the corporate news is an important anchor for earned media interest at the early stages. The other anchors can be really novel founder stories or really luminary founders who've already done something incredible in their past life coming to it again, or some sort of like deep partnership with a major Company. These are some of the examples that you can use to augment your corporate narrative. But the product stuff is hard from a press perspective. So, product will definitely be much more owned content and your owned channels. You know, I think that one of the motions that's super important tied to those themes is community building with users, with evangelists, and engaging them along the way. Figma did this exceedingly well for a long time because the company was disrupting the way design was happening and needed to be deeply enmeshed in the design communities in order to get feedback constantly. And so that's such an important muscle to build, being communicative and finding the channels that reach your growing user, supporter, armchair observer audiences along the way.
1: Going back to kind of this life cycle example, the team has solid messaging. They have a hook or a narrative that they think is compelling. In a granular way, what should they go do next?
0: Let's say they're starting from zero. They've gotten that stuff down, but haven't, let's say, built any relationships yet with reporters. So you have two choices. You can take a pause And make some efforts there, either through your own entrepreneurial, cold emailing ways, which some founders can actually really nail and actually reporters find refreshing. Or you can rely on your venture firms. Or of course, you can bring in an outside expert to help get you through the launch moment.
1: Before you continue on, if a founder wants to go and try to build relationships with reporters, What does that actually look like? What do they do?
0: Send them a note. Hey, reporter. I saw that you've been covering X topic. Here's a novel thought that you may not have considered or an extra insight that I had after reading your story. We're not exactly in that space, but I recently started a company and here's what we're up to. I'd love to keep you posted or spend time grabbing coffee if you're up for it we're really seeing some early traction and would love to just tell you a little bit more about what we're up to in a non-salesy way. I've seen especially some of the enterprise companies at the early stage try to automate that outreach in a blasted sort of way. Don't do that. Don't do that. Very bespoke, very one-on-one. This is all about the match. Press is all about the match. And the relationship building stage of it couldn't be more important no matter what stage you're at. It's true as much for big companies with massive comms teams as it is for early stage companies without anybody full time. The way I talk about it that I think resonates with people is if you know at the Series B, Series C stage that you want to try and pursue an acquisition by a big company like Amazon, let's say. You would never wait until you're ready for that moment to build the relationship, would you? No, do practice. You can't go to them and say, we're ready to be bought, wanna get to know us? You have to build that relationship over time in a strategic way, in an intentional way, in a way that is not transactional at every step along the journey. And so that is the same muscle to deploy in building relationships with reporters.
1: And would you start by having the founder go through the different potential publications and look for the reporters that are covering something that's related to what they're doing? So if they're a security company, go and find all the people across all the publications you care about that really focus, and that's kind of step one.
0: That would definitely be a good step one. And it's okay to be aspirational, In that target list, it's unlikely the Times or the Journal is going to cover an early stage company, but you definitely want them to know you over time. And because your ask is just for a coffee or relationship building, and reporters are always looking for smart sources, it's okay to be aspirational in that outreach. It's different from overreaching on actually pitching a reporter. So it's okay to be aspirational in the relationship-building stage. You have to be really realistic in the actual pitching stage when you're ready to actually try and get a story written. And then it's a relationship to keep nurturing, just the way you would nurture a candidate that you know isn't ready to come work for you right now, but you want to keep them warm and you're hoping that eventually they'll convert. Same thing. So high EQ, you don't want to bombard them, but a note here and there. A thoughtful reply when they post, when they write a story that you find interesting authentically. And, hey, FYI, we updated this, wanted to just share. Just work on the relationship building.
1: And as a founder, if you're building these relationships, I assume if you're doing it well, different reporters will reach out to you on other stories that they're working on, but are within your sphere of knowledge. Do you have any advice on how to navigate that? Because in some ways, I think it can be a great opportunity for you to continue to get your name and your brand out in another story. At the same time, it might be a very negative story. And again, in this case, it might not even be about you, but it could be about someone else in the industry. I think an underappreciated thing is that a short-term oriented founder might be, if there's a negative story about my competitor, that's great the downside of that is a lot of negative stories ensnare all of the companies that sit around it, even if you're not doing something wrong. And so it just seems like a very tricky thing to navigate. And so when a reporter reaches out and says, Hey, do you have five minutes? I'm working on a story about X. What should a founder be thinking about or how should they approach it?
0: I have a pretty strong point of view here. One is value over volume. So Okay, there's a story being written on some topic that's like generally related to your space, but not exactly. And, you know, it's four o'clock on a Friday, they're just trying to put the story to bed, and they want to get a little bit of sound from someone who's smart in this space. Is that a value to the company and the founder? I mean, it can be validating and nice to see your name in print, but is that going to drive value? I'm all for the engagement, for talking to the reporter, for offering something of value, maybe on background or, hey, let me share a point of view you might have not thought about yet. But as far as like really trying to get yourself into something like that, I think that the value of it is usually pretty low. That's a slightly different scenario than what you're describing, where it's a competitor related story. And on those two, it's not a lot of upside for kicking a competitor when they're down on the record. It paints a particular picture of the vibe, the tone, and the brand of your own company if you're the one who's doing that. And so, again, if you put at the top of the hierarchy this importance of building media relationships and nurturing them over time, engagement is totally fine, but... It's always so much better to talk about your own company in your own words, as opposed to a competitor. You can still draw distinctions, but why would you want to be a supporting player in a story about a competitor, especially one that's negative, as opposed to the star of a story that's mostly about you at a different time? So
1: continuing down our sort of fictitious story, let's assume someone from Bloomberg gives you an exclusive and they want to cover your company launching or your financing news. How should the founder approach preparing for the actual interview?
0: Well, the first thing is to prepare. I worked in Washington at an amazing public affairs firm that was home to a lot of the ex-Clinton Gore White House leadership. One of the women who worked there, her name was Didi Dee Dee Myers, and she was the White House press secretary for a time for President Clinton. Didi Dee Dee would Often go on the Sunday shows. This is a woman who had stood up in front of an entire room of international media every day, taking live questions every day, fielding interviews all the time. And every time before she went into a media interaction, she was in her office preparing. I share that story to just remind everybody that the people who are the best at what they do are always putting in the work. And thinking, I'm the founder, I know my story, I can go into this interview and nail it is a complete fallacy. It's a completely different environment. Every word matters, you really have to nail it. So how do you prepare? First is to understand what does it mean to be in a media interview, okay? I'll get real granular for you all. So the conversation usually starts one of three ways. The first is the reporter kind of knows what the news is, has a preview, excited to jump into it, and directs the conversation. The second option is you start chit-chatting. You're building rapport. You're kind of shooting the breeze, talking about all sorts of different topics. And then you realize, well, man, 10, 15 minutes have gone by and we haven't yet gotten to my company or my news. You got to grab control of that conversation, grab the reins and say, but, you know, I know we're here to talk about what we have coming up. I'm really excited. So maybe I can just kick off by telling you a little bit about what we're announcing. And then the third way these conversations can kick off is just with a bit of awkward silence. Nobody really knows who's going to drive, how to start, You're just kind of looking at each other. Zoom only makes this harder. A lot of these are happening on Zoom. So again, grab control of the conversation. If it's okay with you, reporter, I'd love to just kick off by telling you a little bit about myself, a little bit about the company, and then happy to take any questions that you have once I tell you what our news is. So those are the three kind of models I've seen over time for how the interaction begins and the way the founder should navigate it. But the key here and the insight that hopefully is empowering for everyone walking into a press interview is that the question that the reporter is asking is a vehicle for the interviewee to deliver their message. Does that mean you can ignore the question? It does not. It does not mean you can go in a totally different direction than the question asked. What it means is that you can think of every question as an opportunity as opposed to an oh shit moment of like, well, what am I going to say now? And once you kind of think about it that way mentally, it's a lot easier to prepare. Yes, you should think about what questions are going to be asked and how you're going to answer them. Are you disclosing your valuation? You know that's going to come up. So if you're not, you better have a plan for how to answer it. I have a few tricks and important rules of the road for quote-unquote media training in like 30 seconds. One is just that muscle. Question is a vehicle to deliver your message. Know your message, keep coming back to it, but do respect to the reporter's question as well. Two, how do you do that? Pivot or bridge? What is your valuation? We're not disclosing that. But what we're really excited about is the fact that investors from X and Y and Z, who have been in this space for decades, have seen something here that they say they haven't seen in their entire time working in this space. Or the bridge is a short answer to the question, but then gets you back to where you want to go, reporter. Hey, by the way, did you see this other company? It sounds like they're doing something similar. What's exciting to see a lot of action happening in our space What's unique about what we're doing? Back to your message. So that's the second. The third is there are tough questions. And there are also awkward pauses. And a lot of CEOs and founders are brilliant. And they've been A-plus students their whole lives. And it's awkward to leave the silence hanging. But one of the important things to do once you've landed your message, answered the question, and said what you were supposed to say is to stop talking. It can be really dangerous to just blather on. A, because you can accidentally walk back what you already said. And B, you can kind of like wave a red flag in front of a reporter of like something else that's kind of controversial and interesting, but you didn't really want to go to. And then that's where the rest of the conversation goes. So once you land your message, take a drink of water if you're drinking water, you can't talk. So try that. And you can't go into that interaction without the prep. What are the messages? And then you have to practice them out loud. Whatever the question is, you're most afraid to be asked on the record, that's the one you need to practice the most.
1: So do you think it should start with a doc that literally outlines the messages and points and All the questions that you can think of and kind of your rough answers or like, what does that look like?
0: Exactly that. And then if you don't have a either comms partner internally or externally, just ask someone else inside the company to help you prep, to ask you the questions. You can also just prep it yourself out loud. The key is out loud because you won't really know how it feels to animate those points unless you say them out loud. You can't just read it in advance.
1: Do you think charisma plays a role in how a given founder should approach these conversations or what happens in conversations with reporters?
0: Charisma is a powerful attribute. Not everybody has it. I think charisma and dynamism are different. So while charisma may not be able to be totally learned, There are ways to become more dynamic in how you speak, to train yourself not to speak monotonously, to really inject facial expression into what you're talking about, because if you love what you're building, if you're passionate about the mission of your company, you want to exude that. So while charisma is what it is and is a bit more inherent, I think founders and spokespeople can learn to be more dynamic over time. It just takes practice. Because if you're putting the reporter to sleep, they may walk out of that interview and say, thanks for the time. I've actually decided this story probably doesn't have enough for me. And even though I said I was interested, we're probably not going to write the story.
1: On that point about dynamism, what should a founder be doing? How do you practice or exercise that muscle?
0: Tape yourself, play it back, try again. That's the best way. Use your hand gestures. Hand gestures have a way of animating voice. Vary the tone of your voice. Are you the kind of person who always ends sentences with a question mark in your tone? That doesn't inspire a lot of confidence or gravitas. So really think about what are your tics? Are you an um person? Are you a person who answers every question with the word yeah? Hey, are you going to bring on a CFO soon? Yeah, so probably not. Okay, but you've already said yeah. So really like watching yourself through video, luckily we have technology just in the palm of our hands, makes it super easy, is a really important way to just put in the work. And that's the key thing here. If a founder or CEO decides that or company decides that comms is important, it takes work.
1: Before we hit a couple other topics, are there any other things that we didn't cover around this early work and engaging with reporters and mistakes to avoid and those types of things?
0: There's a significant misalignment of incentives between PR agencies and clients. I find this to be most acute at the early stage, when there usually isn't anyone with comms expertise internally who's trying to manage that relationship. And the result of that can be that, not that it's in a malicious intent, but you'll see a PR agency put together a list of 100 reporters for a Series A announcement, including people at the New York Times. It's not going to happen maybe they think it's going to make the company, the client feel good to see that list, right? To feel like, oh, wow, there are 100 reporters we could reach out to. There are not. There definitely are not. But there isn't enough, I think, real talk around what it takes and what the ceiling is on what's possible at these early stages for a press perspective. And so I think that fault sits with both parties, and I find it most to be the case with agencies, but not just agencies, sometimes in-house people who feel like they can't tell their CEO, no, this isn't an interesting story. I can't pitch it. I won't pitch it. So real talk is super important, making sure everybody is aligned. And for the startup, not directing your comms team, your comms freelancer, your comms agency to just go crazy and blast people in a way that actually can do brand damage over time. So I think it's hard to manage an agency relationship well for even the most mature comms programs and teams. Everyone will tell you that. It's not perfect or easy. Agencies have an important role to play in the ecosystem. I just find that at the early stages, because the company usually is flying pretty blind on this core area of expertise that it tends not to work out great. There are exceptions. There are a couple of agencies and freelancers who do a really solid job, but it's more the exception than the rule.
1: On that point, it's a great opportunity to talk a little bit more about agencies in the early days. And based on what you're saying, do you think founders should consider them not freelancer versus agency? Is kind of like one set of questions. And then the other might be If a founder is thinking about retaining an agency, what do they need to look for? Or if we often talk about what is a candidate interview process looks like that's really effective, how do you think about what a great interview process for a PR agency looks like?
0: I love the freelancer model, especially at the early stage where you really want an extension of your team. And it isn't like an arms and legs engagement. An arms and legs engagement is, hey, we, the company, have figured all the strategy out. We have our messaging. We just need your help translating this into earned media. So all you need to do is really maybe shore up some of the messaging and then pitch it. No, you're just building it while you're flying it. And so what a freelancer can do is come in and really be that point counterpoint role with the founder to draw out the story, whether it's the long-term story or the story for the next three or six months and act as an extension of the team. There's a lot of coordination. When's the website going to go live? Do we have our LinkedIn handle yet? What is the description for the company on the LinkedIn handle? I guarantee you like a founder and a team of engineers are not thinking about that. And so I like the freelancer model a lot. And it's a lot cheaper for a lot more hands-on time. Sometimes you, and especially as companies progress, maybe an agency would make sense. The key things to look for are, one, who's actually going to be doing the work? There will be very senior people who come to that pitch meeting. Are they going to reach out to media? Are they going to be reviewing the pitch emails that go out from the junior agency rep? That is a brand touchpoint for you with a reporter, which is a really important strategic audience. Who's going to have oversight over that? So that's really key and important. And then I would really look for, it's kind of similar to a candidate, right? You want someone who's going to push back on you. You want someone who will tell you, like I said before, the real talk, no, I'm sorry. We don't think that this would land, but we could workshop it with you. Let's figure out a way that could. But no, you, you can't pitch the New York Times about your Series A funding announcement or the fact that you hired a CRO. That is the key thing to look for. Someone who's willing to tell you when you're wrong.
1: Is there anything else a founder interviewing a couple of freelancers should consider? Let's go down. It's an early team. It's Series A. They are interviewing a couple of freelancers. What they should be doing in that interview to increase the odds that they end up retaining somebody that's really stellar.
0: Getting initial feedback on the story, number one what's the point of view of this person and how are they bringing it? Are they able in that interview process to really go deep on what the business is up to or are they like a surface level person who's just going to like grok the broad brush strokes? The thing to understand about both journalists and great comms people is they have to get really smart on new things Every time they dig into a new project, a new launch, a new moment. And so really trying to suss that out is really important for the freelancer. Having them talk about wins and fails, have to be able to talk about fails. Everyone in comms has fails. So what have been your fails lately? What are a couple wins you're proud of? And then you got to validate those wins with references if you can. But you want to see the stories. You want to see the stories. You want to see the ecosystem of content that they put out. And so after you hired that
1: person, any advice on how to actually work in the most productive way to set that individual up for the most success in their role, in this case, as a comms or PR freelancer for you?
0: There's definitely upfront investment of time and mind melding. And here's who you need to know on the team. And here's the like de minimis stuff that we have that's ready to go in terms of positioning or messaging. Here are the customers that we know we can talk about their logos. Basically, the mind meld stage. It takes time. It's worth getting into. As part of that mind meld stage, a little bit of one-on-one time with the founder or a lot would be better, but as much as possible to really start to get that connection clicking and make sure intuitively the freelancer understands the goals, the vision, how the founder thinks, and can suss out also where the strengths and weaknesses will be from an interview perspective. I'm personally not a fan of the recurring client management meetings. They devolve into lowest common denominator of relationship hey, here's the agenda. By the way, I charged you to create the agenda. So really it's better to like take it as if you're working on a project and not have a standing conversation, but schedule the meeting cadence. Hey, okay, we're gonna need to meet on this day to review the blog post. Okay, we're gonna need to meet on this day to do the media training. Make sure media training is part of that early engagement. Get out of the roteness of the kind of standing consultant client meetings because I think that can inject a little bit more authenticity into the workflow.
1: How do you know if someone in this role, either an agency or freelancer, is doing a poor, good, or exceptional job? And outside of maybe the obvious thing, which is like, are they getting good, quote, coverage? Because I think it's often hard to tell, is it an issue with the founder, how they're supporting the process? Is it just a very difficult company, to get coverage on because it's uninteresting or not relevant to something that's going on. And so kind of picking those things apart can be tricky at times. And if a founder hasn't worked with 10 agencies, it might be a little bit hard to know if somebody's doing an exceptional job or not.
0: Well, it is a very difficult environment, no matter for the uninteresting companies. And the interesting companies, and by the way, by uninteresting, I mean uninteresting to media, not necessarily uninteresting more broadly. So it is a difficult environment. And I don't think that there should be like a either you deliver a press hit within the first month or you're out kind of mentality, Because remember, communications isn't just earned media. It really depends on what the program is you've engaged on. So is the writing strong? Are they taking your own communications to the next level? Are they helping you sharpen what you're putting out on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on your blog? Are they an ideas person? Are they driving sort of the program forward, even though they're not part of your team? If you can make allotments for sort of not managing to land press at a certain stage. But if there is some recognition that press is important over time and reasonable to get and it's not happening, at some point you have to call a spade a spade. I just think it's important to take a little bit of time on that. The other piece that's a bit less measurable is rapport. Telling the story of a company through earned media is a deeply personal thing for founders, as it should be. This is their baby they're kind of giving up a little control. They don't get to read the story before it runs or approve any of the quotes, You know all those common questions that you get at the early stages that are like an absolute no. And so just is the rapport there? Do they feel like they're getting good advice? Do they feel like the freelancer or the consultant is driving the thinking forward and educating them continually on what it means to do this work. So those are some of the more intangibles that I would be thinking about. But you don't want to switch agencies like all the time, right? At some point, someone who's had success delivering media in a tough environment for myriad clients, if they're not able to do it for you, it may be you, right? You need to like, and if they need to be driving- You're the the common
1: denominator-
0: Well, I mean, it might be, or it might be to say, look, the story we've put together is not landing. Let's take a different tactic. We're not going to change what the company's up to. Our mission is clear. But like, maybe we need to change how we're communicating that to the external world. Maybe we need to inject more tension into it. Who's our big company stalking horse? Is there a big customer who would like do a deep dive and like really knock the socks off of this reporter to understand like the game changing effect that we're having on them. I don't know. I'm riffing here, but it's also important to like just as you would in a sales process, iterate on the pitch, same thing.
1: Maybe to sort of wrap up, we could just briefly talk about you've worked with agencies or you've worked with a freelancer and you decide it's time to hire my first comms person full time. How you know it's the right time? One and then what should you be looking for? Or what's unique about that first comms hire?
0: I think when you know it's time, the founder's probably spending at least you know 20% of their time on comms, internal, external, writing, 25 maybe, but it's just not scalable over time. And that is a good time to start thinking about bringing someone in it's really important to be clear about what you're trying to solve for. So one of the mistakes I see companies make at this stage is to say, well, we're hiring a marketer and they're going to own comms. Do you need marketing or do you need comms? They're different. Are you hiring someone to get your demand gen motion up and running? Or are you hiring someone who's going to do much broader brand awareness, top of funnel storytelling across earned and owned media. They're different skill sets. Once you're ready to say, no, we definitely need comms, what's the most important bucket of comms you're trying to solve for? Are you a consumer brand that's kind of controversial, that's going to have a ton of scrutiny, ton of press coverage, ton of controversy? You Definitely want somebody who's really well-schooled and experienced and earned media. Are you more the type of comms program that is going to be more focused on content, blog posts, internal comms, executive comms, speaking engagements, less press, then that's a slightly different type of archetype to hire for. So being clear about what your archetype is and what the most important buckets of work are for that first stage is what you need to do first before you start writing a job description and interviewing people.
1: And then kind of fast-forwarding a bit, when you are interviewing folks, anything you've learned about the types of questions to ask, exercises to do, anything about that process that'll set someone up for the most success?
0: I think it requires the founder to spend quite a bit of time. You can't do a 30-minute interview and then hire someone for comms and know it'll work out. It requires more than that. It requires a little bit of trust building, it requires rapport building, it requires the chance to have food fights in that interview process, disagreements about what makes sense and what doesn't. The other is really trying to understand, again, same process as the freelancer. Is this comms person like really getting into the weeds of our business? It's a real flag if they're not It's essential. You may not communicate those weeds externally, but the comms person has to know them in order to draw out what's important, understand the risks, scenario plan. So do you feel like there's a real deep dive that the candidate has done into the details, the product, the technology, the business? Exercises are a must. Definitely have a candidate do an exercise. Have them do a presentation, a live presentation. If someone can't be a great storyteller themselves as a speaker, how are they going to coach you to be one? So do it as a live presentation. Make sure there's a mix in the prompt of strategic thinking and tactics. Because if it's all like high-level strategy, you have no idea that there will be execution oriented. And if it's only like random tactics that don't knit together into a strategy, you also know, well, that's not going to work either. Anything
1: else on the exercise or practical that you would give the candidate?
0: You could take a blog post that the company had done and say, how would you have improved this? How would you have sharpened the story? What would you change? Like a ex post facto. You could do the same for if the company has gotten press before. Something like that is a very practical exercise. But I also think that at the early stage, people are not coming into an established workflow the first comms person will create the workflow. So I like doing something that's a bit more vague as a way to test whether they can shape something out of clay.
1: Maybe to wrap up, any resources or books or things that you've read or come across that you think are a great starting point or resource for founders who are trying to level up and grow in this area?
0: Listening to great executives do interviews live early stage founder and Satya Nadella are not apples to apples comparison, but every single spokesperson can listen to him in an interview and say, wow, that was amazing does an amazing job, sounds human, super approachable, doesn't talk in jargon, but doesn't make mistakes either, doesn't step into areas he shouldn't. He's very authentic. You feel the personality coming through. So really just like seeing, watching, and listening, podcasts, TV interviews, and you can't tell as much from earned media coverage how good a spokesperson is, but really trying to absorb how the best in class executives and leaders show up in the world for comms is an important way of learning. Are
1: there other CEOs or execs who you think just do an exceptional job?
0: I think Evan Spiegel's done a really good job lately. I think Snap and Evan have, he's really showing up, I think, as a much more advanced leader today than he did in the earlier days, which is normal course of business, but you can tell he's putting in the time because his evolution is kind of visible. So I like watching him as well.
1: Awesome, well, thank you so much for sharing all this with us. This was awesome.
0: Thanks, Brad, thanks for having me.